TheYeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated for a refuah shlema, complete and speedy recovery. For Pesha Sasi Bas Sheina Pesa, and a Yeshua Felio Tzvi Ben Rachel, and a refuah shlema, complete and speedy recovery for Banita Ben for Banita Bas Elka. Amen, Ken Yiratzen. Also dedicated by Sarah, Huvi, David, Aryeh, Rifkalea, Chani, and Baruch God Oppenheimer in honor of our wonderful grandparents, David and Caden Oppenheimer, who continue to inspire us with their selfless acts of kindness and true hachnasas archim and hospitality. May Hashem continue to grant our dear grandparents health, happiness, much nachas from us and all of their grandchildren. Amen. How beautiful. With gratitude to Hashem, also dedicated with gratitude to Hashem for the marriage of our children, Mindy and Sam. Tuesday, Chavches Adar Aleph, Tavshin Pei Beis, 28th Adar 1, 5782, March 1st, 2022. By the parents, Beryl Jacobowitz, Lisa Jacobowitz, and by Dr. Yisrael and Chani. And in honor of the parents, Mr. Beryl Jacobowitz and Lisa Jacobowitz, dedicated by Dr. Yisrael and Chani Kaplan. Mazel tov, mazel tov, and thank you very much to all of you, and thank you for your friendship, and amen to all of the heartfelt blessings. You can make yourself comfortable. Okay, so let me tell you about today's class. There's a source sheet here. Let me tell you about today's class, Be'ezer Hashem. I want to talk about the situation in Ukraine, but I first want to open up the first 15 minutes with something that's connected to our parsha, Parsha's Pekude, and the end of Sefer Shmois. And then that will lead in to the second part of the class, which will be about the war, the present war and crisis in Ukraine. The soul of Ukrainian Jewry, the history of Ukrainian Jewry, the crisis of Ukrainian Jewry, and our calling today. So if you have a source sheet, we're going to address something a little unusual today. Usually we discuss a story in the Parsha, a mitzvah in the Parsha, a Pasuk in the Parsha. Sometimes a class will address a word and sometimes even a letter. Because as we know, every word and every letter in Torah is meticulous, is precise, and is divine. And therefore one letter contains infinite layers of depth as much as a word, a Pasuk, a Sedra, a Parsha, a whole Perik, and a whole Chumash, and the whole Tanakh, the whole Torah. But today we're not going to discuss any of this. We're going to discuss something that is mysteriously not present. Something that has mysteriously fallen out from Parshas Pekudeh. And even though many don't notice it, and some dismiss it as, you know, these things happen, but it certainly triggered and triggers a fascinating discussion. If you open up any Chumash, I shouldn't say any Chumash, most Chumashim, if you open up ever a Chumash, you'll see at the end of every parsha, it says how many psukim the parsha has, how many verses it has. Every parsha. So you know how many psukim it has. This is from the first parsha of Bereshis until the last of Azai Sabrach. But you'll also notice after that, there's a simon. A simon is what they call in English a uh, mnemonic, a, a symbol, a word or a name that has the same numerical value as the number of psukim of that parsha, the same gematria, that allows you to retain in your memory the number of the psukim in that parsha. And usually a word or name was chosen 
that's either from the Parsha or connected to the Parsha or a name or a word in Tanakh so that it would be familiar for those who know Tanakh. A few examples. Parsha's Bereshus, the first Parsha, has 146 psukim. How do I know I didn't count today? But if you look at the end of Bereshus, it says Kuf Memvav psukim, that's 146. And right after that, there's a simon. There's actually two. Amatzia and Yechizkiyahu. These are two names in Tanakh. Amatzia and Yechizkiyahu. And each one is a good simon for Bereshus because Amatzia is 146 and Yechizkiyahu is 146. It's in your source sheets. Take Noyach. Noyach, the second line, is 153 psukim. At the end it says, Kufnun Gimel, Betzalel Simen. A simon for this is Betzalel. The name Betzalel, which is of course a name in Chumash, including in Parshas Pekudeh, the artisan of the Mishkan, the chief architect and artisan of the Mishkan, his name was Betzalel. Betzalel is the numerical value based Sadiq Lam and Aleph Lamet, 153. Another simon is Yiska Loit. Yiska and Loit happened to be two, sister, uh, two siblings, the daughter, the children of Haran, as discussed at the end of Nayach. Lech Lecha has 126 psukim. The simon is Nimoilu. Nimoilu is a word from Lech Lecha. It means they had a bris, they were circumcised. Nun Mem Lamed Vav is the numerical value of 126. Vayera, 147, the simon is Amnon. Amnon is, of course, a figure, a personality in Tanakh, one of David HaMelech's children. Shmois, Parsha Shmois, 124, the simon is Vayikach. Vayikach is a word in Shmois. Vayikach Amram took and married his wife, Yocheved, and of course they were the parents of Miriam, Aaron, and Moshe. Let's take Tetzava, 101, the simon is Michal. Michal, who is, of course, one of the angels, is 101 Tetzava. You come to Vayakel last week, Kufchav Beis, 122. Snua Simon. Snua with a sin. It's a name in Tanakh in the book of Nehemiah. There's a name Snua, and it's 122. That's Vayakel. Come to Pkudeh and open up your Chumash Mikrois Gdailis, which are always the Chumashim that have this, and most others. And it says, Tzadik Beis Psukim. 92 Psukim. There's no Simon. Every other parsha besides Pekudeh. From Bereshit, there's a bracha, there's a number and a simon. Pekudeh somehow does not have a mnemonic. It just says 92 psukim. Now, it's not like there are no words or names that are equivalent to 92. In fact, the Malbim, in his Chumash, has a simon. Eitze, I will go out. Aleph, Tzadik, Aleph, Aleph is one. Tzadik, Aleph is 91, that's 92. There's a Sefer, Kirya Sefer, by Rabbeinu Menachem HaMeiri, and he has another simon. Uziah is also 92. But in most chumashim, in most chumashim that have the simonim, somehow the simon of Pkudeh fell out. And people always wondered what happened. There are plenty of words, plenty of names that make up the numerical value of 92. Why was Parshas Pkudeh orphaned from having a simon, from having a mnemonic? So again, this is not a discussion that is so popular and prevalent because most people, if they get to the end of the parsha, they're happy and to discuss the simon seems sometimes like there's other things to discuss before we get there. But it's certainly a fascinating question. What happened to the simon? Why was Pkudeh, why did Pkudeh get excluded? Was it intentional? Was it not intentional? So... I once came across a fascinating exchange, a fascinating correspondence exchange, 
between Arav and Tel Aviv and the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1953. In the summer of 1953, there was a rabbi in Tel Aviv. His name was Rabbi Alexander Sender Yudasin. And he penned a letter to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which is printed. And he asks, what happened to Parshas Pekudeh? In the letter that the Rebbe responded to Rabbi Yudasin, which is published, that's where I saw it, it's published in his letters. He says, you ask, what happened to Parshas Pekudeh? He says, the truth is we have to look in the first prince, the first prince of Chumashim that have Simonim, we have to look what is happening there. Because I believe that this was not intentional. The printer made a mistake and he let it go. And then the Chumashim were just copying the first Chumash and everybody copied the previous one and the previous one and the previous one. And that's what happened. That's what he writes to him. But then he says, Ulai Efshir. I want to suggest one possibility. The possibility is really very, very simple, but also extremely ingenious and creative. And he said, perhaps this is what happened, because the question is, why would the printer punct? Why would this Parsha Simon fall out? The printer made a mistake. Okay. Why? What happened? And then everybody copied it. So there was no grand conspiracy against Parsha's Pekudeh. It was just an error. These things happen. But why would this error happen? So he says, Ulai Efsha, maybe you could suggest the following. The person who wrote the simon, now we don't know who made these mnemonics, but they were made very, very early on. They were made by obviously great people. They, they came into most Chumashim, and many Svarim over the generations, not many, but some Svarim over the generations have identified the connections between the simon and the Parsha. So it's not just random. Betzalel, Amatzia, Chizkia, Michal. There is some thematic connection. I know in the art scroll Chumashim, they bring every Parsha from Reb David. Feinstein, who passed away not long ago, Reb Moshe's son, Zeich Tzadik Levracha, who tries to explain every parsha, the connection of the simon. Also in earlier generations, there were those who did it. Just to give one example, Parsha's Tetzav is 101 Psukim. The simon is Michal. There was one of the great sages of Krakow in the 1600s. He's known as the Rebbe Reb Heschel of Krakow. He was a Rav in Shishiva in Poland. And he writes that the reason is because the only parsha in the whole Chumash from when Moshe is born, that doesn't have his name, is Parsha's Tetzava. No other Parsha is missing Moshe's name. And for good reason, he's part of every Parsha. From the moment he's born in Parsha Shmois, he's mentioned in every single Parsha until his passing in the last Parsha, besides Atta Tetzava. And it's another mystery. How did Moshe's name fall out of Atta Tetzava? The Balaturim has a famous interpretation that since Moshe told Hashem that if you do not forgive the Jewish people, you should erase me from the Sefer that you have written. So even though it was only a condition, it had an impact, and his name got erased from one parsha. So the Rebbe Rebbe Heschel of Krakow says as follows, the Sefer Chanukah Zabayis, he says, after the creation of the golden calf, Hashem told Moshe, I'm not going to go among you anymore. He named Malachi Yelech Lefanecha. My angel is going to lead you. So Moshe told Hashem, If you're not coming, don't take us out. <laughs> He made a condition, and Moshe sent away the Malach. Malachi, my angel, is also the same letters like Michal, because the Malachi is Michal, because the angel that Hashem sent to lead the Jewish people was Malach Michal, and Moshe sent him away. And he came back only in the time of Yeshua. It says Yeshua encountered a Malach. That was the angel that Moshe sent away, and he came back to Yeshua. So the Rebbe Rebbe Heshul says, Michal could only be in Parshas Tetzavah, where Moshe's name is not mentioned. Moshe's name gets deleted. Here, Malach Michal can emerge. So there's different interesting connections. What happened in Parshas Pekudeh? The suggestion that the Lubavitcher Rebbe suggested to this rabbi of Tel Aviv, Rabbi Yudasin, was as follows. 
He said, the one who created the Siman and wrote as follows, Parshas Pekudei, Tzadik Beis Pesukim, 92 Pesukim. Okay. Now take a look in your source sheets, it'll be easier. And he wrote as follows, Bli Kol Simen. The Simen for Parshas Pekudei are the two words, Bli Kol. What is Bli Kol? So I wrote the numbers in the next line so you could see. Beis is 2, Lamed is 30, Yud is 10, Chaf is 20, Lamed is 30. 2 plus 30 plus 10, plus 20, plus 30, equals 92. So belikal is the numerical value of 92. Belikal, that was the simon. So the simon for Parshish Pekudi are two words, belikal. The printer, they used to call them in Yiddish, the Bacha Hazetzer, and it wasn't always a complimentary term, it was somebody who didn't always know what he was doing, he just got the job. They called him the Bacha Hazetzer. So the Bacha Hazetzer, comes to Pekude and he says, Tzadik Beis Pesukim, 92 Pesukim, Beli Kol Simen. What does he read? Beli Kol, what does Beli Kol mean? <laughs> There's no Simen. Beli means without, Kol means any. Beli Kol Simen, it's without any Simen. So in his wisdom, he thinks to himself, what do I have to waste ink? And write, Beli Kol Simen, it's without any Simen. Don't put in a Simen, and obviously everybody will see that there's no Simen, Right? Every part of ink is valuable. <laughs> so he takes out the simon. Of course, all the fo- following chamashim follow suit. So the simon fell out. What was really, what was really the intention? The intention was, Blikol is the simon. That is the simon. It's not Blikol simon. It's without any simon. Blikol hyphen simon. <laughs> that is the simon. The simon is Blikol. What would be the connection to Parshas Pekudeh? The truth is, if you look at the last words of Parshas Pekudei, the next line, the last Pasuk, it says, the cloud of Hashem was on the Mishkan by day. There was a fire burning at night. Before the eyes of the entire, entire house, house of Yisrael, of the Jewish people, during all of their journeys. So you right away have there the word kol, right? Kol Yisrael. So you have there the word kol. But now take the words, le'ene. Base Yisrael, and it's the acronym of Beli. Le'ene begins with a Lamed. Beis begins with a Beis. Bechol Yisrael begins with a Yud. So Le'ene, Chol Yisrael, you have Lamed, you have Chaf, you have a Beis, you have a Yud. So Chol is one of the words, Chol. And then Le'ene begins with a Lamed. Base begins with a Beis. Yisrael begins with a Yud. It's Beli. So you have right there in the last Pasuk of Parshas Pekudeh, the acronym of the word Beli and the word Kol. And then the last words are Bechol Mas Ahem. In all of their, in all of their journeys. Which also, Bechol is also an acronym, Beli Kol. That was a suggestion, a possible suggestion. What happened to Parshas Pekude? But the truth is, I think it's much deeper than just a... Uh, an ingenious and creative or uh, fantastic insight, it also contains a very, very powerful message which would explain why it concludes Sefer Shmois, it concludes Parshas Pekudeh, it, it's the Parshas Chazak, afterwards you finish the Parsha and everyone declares Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazak, because what does Blikol mean? Blikol means without anything, without anything. It represents a situation in life where a person often feels, Blikal, I'm left with nothing. I tried, I worked so hard, 
trying to face those challenges, those trials, those wounds, those experiences, to emerge from them unscathed or at least better, more repaired, more fixed. But sometimes a person looks at their life and their entire conclusion is, belikal. It's just without, without everything and without anything. Kal in Hebrew could mean everything and it could mean anything. It works both in, in Lashon Kaidish. It works both ways. Belikal, without everything or even worse, <laughs> Nobody has everything, but sometimes it's belikal, like without anything. Belikal simma, there's nothing here. So Parshas Pekude comes and teaches a Jew, belikal simmon. I could read it, there's always a bacha hazetzer in the side of me who will say, belikal simmon, there's nothing here, there's nothing here. Forget about it, just give up, surrender to uh, despair. But there's a deeper and more authentic way of looking at it. The belief call itself is the greatest simon. When I plant a seed into the earth, in order for the seed to morph into a tree, it goes through complete decomposition. There's a famous expression in works of Kabbalah and Hasidus, between one yesh and another yesh, there's an ayin be'emtza. Between one state of being and a completely transformed state of being, there's always a state of ayin which is nothingness, but it's really no-thingness because I lose touch with the original identity and in order to morph into a new identity, the seed can remain a seed, a wonderful seed, but for the seed to morph into a splendid, amazing, incredible tree, it completely rots and decomposes in the ground where there's belief called, there's nothing there. But it's that nothingness, that no-thingness that is really an opportunity, an invitation for a complete and radical transformation and paradigm shift. It's a quantum leap. It's not just incremental growth like on a ramp, slowly but surely, then you just move on and on. But between one yesh and a completely transformative yesh, there was always that ion. You know, we have in physics today a concept called the black hole. Black hole is a fascinating phenomenon. The concept of a black hole is they call it a black hole because it's black. You can't see it but not because it doesn't have light. It's the opposite. Every object emits light, but the black hole has so much gravitational pull. The size of the body, the mass, is so intense that the gravity is so powerful that it doesn't allow any of the light to escape because it pulls in all the light. So the black hole, paradoxically, has more light than anything else in the world. That's why it's black, because all the light stays inside. None of the light gets scattered and dispersed. So paradoxically, it has the greatest and deepest light. When you look at it, you're talking about a black hole, but really, it has so much deeper light, and because it's so much much light, we can't see it. It doesn't get scattered, it doesn't get compromised, it doesn't get... It mitigated, it doesn't get, it doesn't get diluted, there's an expression in Tehillim, Yashes Choshech Sisroi, which means Hashem's hidden place is sometimes called darkness. What does that mean? There's a darkness that is a much deeper light, and because it's a deeper light, it's like a, a light that blinds me, so therefore I have to close my eyes, because it's so intense. There's such a deep, deep invitation here. There's such a deep, deep energy. It's a different type of simon. Where does the first bleak call come from? The first bleak call happens, the Arizal teaches that for Hashem to create the world, He had to create what's called a halal, an empty space. Because Hashem is infinite, ain't safe. 
And infinity excludes any other reality. Everything is infinite. Infinity means it's everything. So there's no room for otherness. So in order to create a world that Rizal teaches, Hashem had to the first thing create a tzimtzum. Tzimtzum means he concealed his infinite presence, creating what's called in Kabbalah a chalol and makam panoi, an empty space that's apparently devoid of the divine infinite presence. In that empty space, the world and all of consciousness emerged, feeling separate. So the greatest bleak call in the world, the source of all the bleak calls, you ever feel empty? You ever having a day where there's a deep emptiness and a deep void? Somehow I suspect some of you know what I'm talking about. There is this deep void and more sensitive people feel it far deeper than other people. And the more spiritual you are, the deeper the void is. The beginning, the genesis of that void. So we look, what's causing that void? And there's a lot of symptoms, of course. And one should always try to fill that void in healthy and productive ways. There's... I can escape my voids and I can fill my voids. It's two different processes. Escaping my voids means distracting myself from the void. Now, distractions are sometimes good, unless they're unhealthy and destructive. Nothing wrong sometimes with having a distraction. But what I really am looking for is to fill the void. But in order to fill the void, I have to understand what it is. If I don't know what it is, I can never fill it. I can only distract myself from it. And this is the key issue in people's lives. What do I, we all have voids. What do I do with it? How do I respond to my void? Do I respond to it with compassion, with a lot of compassion and sensitivity, and then try to understand it at least a little bit or feel it and fill it, or distract it? And then when I distract myself from it, the question is, how far will I go to distract from it? Because the distraction of yesterday is insufficient for today. So I have to distract myself with more drama, and with more intensity, this is what addiction is basically all about. We just summed it up in 20 seconds. But it's, it's, it's very intense. But what's the source of the void? What's the real source of the void? The real source of the void is the original void that existence is based on. All of existence is based on a void, a hollow. It's not like I have a void because this and this happened to me in my life. Yes, but that's after a long domino effect and series of journeys and journeys, it all goes back to a void that everybody has to face. In other words, even the healthiest, most righteous, most holy, most perfect person, if that thing exists, faces a trauma from the very definition of existence that's created by, that's created by, with the foundation of Chayshech. At the core of existence is not light. At the core of existence is a bleak hull, a sense of emptiness. A chalal and makampani, which creates a trauma from a soul that is essentially, everything is really one with infinity, enoid mulvadai. But the definition of existence is, there's an experience of an emptiness in which I may not feel that I'm one with infinity. Oilam comes from the word helam, concealment. The world is not just a concealed place because there are things that happen that conceal truth. The very definition of existence is concealment. Because if there was no concealment, there would be no existence outside of infinite oneness. All of existence is really subsumed in Hashem's Ein Saif. So the very, you understand what I'm saying? Huh? So, <laughs> this is a pretty intense idea. It's not things happen. Things also happen, but those are all, you know, symptoms and, and, and the children of symptoms and the offspring of system, symptoms. 
existence is where the problem, so to speak, is. And that's why the deepest and sensitive soul, sometimes their trauma is existence. We don't understand. What happened? I gave her the best childhood in the world. I gave him the best. You did. <laughs> you did. They're just picking up. They're picking up. You know, scientists in the 1920s proved the Big Bang because they started to hear the sounds of the Big Bang. Imagine they can hear it. They can hear the vibrations of a universe expanding. Some souls can hear, can, 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 they're sensitive to the sound of the tzimtzum. And that trauma drives them crazy. And the only way for them to fill that void is radical spiritual oneness. To be able to realize that all of human life, all of avoid, all of Yiddishkeit, the core of everything is that the human being looks and steers into the void and instead of saying, Bli kol simen, the person says, Bli kol simen. This Bli kol, this hollow, this emptiness, this void is just an invitation. It's an opportunity to reveal, to bring out that this itself is the deepest simen. This is a black hole. There's more light here than anywhere else. There's so much light. There's such deep light that it's not light that I can perceive through my limited tools. It's infinite light through which, which I can perceive only when my eye can transcend and reach a far, far deeper place of wholeness. Now, if you understood what I just said, I didn't understand everything I just said, but if you understood what I just said, and you can internalize this, not just intellectually, but viscerally, <laughs> with your body, with your, with your brain, with your neshama, with your guf. It changes everything because every void in life is ultimately a symptom of that void. You know, and you, we all know when it comes to healing or other forms, it's never good to just deal with the symptoms. You always want to go back to the core because that's where things really happen. It's brought in Svarim. You always want to go back to the core. <coughs> A person is having a symptom. Of course, we want to find out what's the reason for it. So whenever you think about the voids in life, we can always talk about symptoms and even very deep symptoms. But the ultimate core is, it's the symptom. Blame the symptom. Blame the bleak hull, God's primordial void that he created with the withdrawal of symptom. And halal. And at the end of Kudai, what happens? The Jews created a golden calf. The Shekhinah, so to speak, left them. The relationship ended, but what do they do? They build a Mishkan, and the Shekhinah descends. In that greatest void of history, where God says, it's over, this relationship is over. They took the bleak hull, and they transformed it into the greatest relationship, into the greatest simon. In fact, as Moshe couldn't go in, because there was a cloud. A cloud represents darkness. A cloud eclipses the light. When there's a cloud in my life, what do I need to do? I could say it's dark or I know that the sun is always shining above it. The cloud will disperse and there's the sunlight always over it. And even in the cloud itself, there's a deeper Yashas Choshech Sisrei. The greatness of the human story is, and this didn't happen before creation, the greatness of the human story is that we could look at the void, we could look at the emptiness, we could look at the bleak hull, and instead of saying bleak hull simen, we say bleak hull, this is the simen. This is the sign. This is the opportunity for the deepest, deepest form of relationship. This void is just uh, an invitation to develop a far, far 
deeper intimacy, one that cannot be destroyed through what seems like apparent darkness, one that invites us to a much, much deeper form of light. And the greatest symbol for this in Jewish history was Rabbi Akiva. The Gemara says about Rabbi Akiva that he and his colleagues went once to visit the Harabayas, the Temple Mount, after the destruction of the Second Beis Hamikdash, and they saw a fox coming out from the place that used to be Kodesh Hakadoshim, the Holy of Holies, on the Harabayas. The Gemara says this at the end of Meseches Makkah, page twenty-four, and they all started to cry. And he started to quell and laugh. And they asked him, why are you laughing? What's so funny about a fox coming out of Kedosh HaKadosh? And as a good Jew, he said, why are you crying? You answer a question with a question. So he said, how could we not cry? The place that even a Yisrael who walked in here, not a Yisrael who walked in, could pass away from the intense holiness. And here, Shu'alim Hilchubay. And that's when Rabbi Akiva says, that's why I'm laughing. Because Rabbi Akiva said there are two prophecies. One is, Tzion, Zion will be plowed like a field. Another one is, The elderly will once walk in the streets of Jerusalem and the sound of song and dance and festivity would return to the Jewish world. The first prophecy was not fulfilled. I wasn't sure about the second one. Now I see the first one was fulfilled. I know the second one will be fulfilled. So the Gemara says, They told them, you have comforted us. So when Rabbi Akiva sees that fox coming out of Kedosh HaKadoshim representing complete desolateness, bleak cold, there's nothing left, really nothing left. What does he see? One person could say, bleak cold simon, the simon is gone. The simon, the sign, the manifestation, the bias of Hashem's presence is gone, it's over. But Rabbi Akiva said, no, the bleak cold itself became the greatest simon. Don't you see? If every nevu of Tzia in Sada Techarish was fulfilled, don't you realize, And you know, today it's 2,000 years after Rabbi Akiva lived, and we're still waiting for Mashiach any moment, but you walk already into Yerushalayim, and you see, 7.7 million Jews today living in Eretz Yisrael, the greatest Jewish community in the world today. Kein Yerbo. Rabbi Akiva, the Gemara also says about Rabbi Akiva, Meseches Menachas, page 29, when Moshe came up to Mount Sinai, he saw that Hashem was making on the Sefer Torah Tagim. You know what Tagim are? There are seven letters that have little lines on them. They look like little Zions, little thorns. They're called Tagim. The Gemara calls them Kaitzim, thorns, because they look like little thorns. So Moshe said, what are these for? Like, who... Who needs them? So he said, "There's going to be a Jew one day, Akiva ben Yosef. I'll call kites v'kites asid lidrish till etilim shalhalachis. On every single thorn, on every single one of these little tagim, he's going to expound mounds of halacha. The interesting expression is, I'll call kites v'kites on every thorn. So I once heard a shir from Rabbi Yisrael Salavechik. Rabbi Salavechik said that there's a very deep remez here. There's a very deep message. Kites is a thorn." Rabbi Akiva lived in a time when the Romans perforated Klal Yisrael with, with endless thorns. Rabbi Akiva himself was killed that way. But I'll call kites for kites. What did he do with every thorn? Every thorn with which the Romans tried to decimate, perforate, puncture the soul, the heart, the brain of the Jewish people and snuff out their soul. What was Rabbi Akiva's response? I'll call kites for kites. 
from every thorn, he said, we're going to turn this into a catalyst, a springboard for rejuvenation, for an unprecedented renaissance, for tilei tilim shalalachis. In fact, the Gemara says, kulu alibadi Rabbi Akiva, the whole Torah that we have today comes from Rabbi Akiva. He had 24,000 students. They all died. He should have gone into a colossal depression. Imagine a person losing 24,000 students after he started to learn only at the age of 40. And his wife encouraged him and empowered him and motivated him and he was successful. And he became the God of Ladeh. He has 24,000 students. And then everything is gone. What do you do at such a moment? It's like, okay, I'm done. God, find somebody else. And the Gemara says in Shamim, the Jewish world was desolate. And he came to the south and he found five students. And with these five students... He rebuilt Yiddishkeit and they passed on the tradition of Rabbi Akiva. And the Gemara says, till today, Kulu alibadi Rabbi Akiva. The whole tradition of Torah comes to Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva looked at bleak oil, called kites for kites, and he turned it into a simon. I remember when I was, in, I was in Krakow a few years ago. So I went to visit, it was with a group of college kids, around 60 students. So I went to visit the first base Yaakov that Sarah Schneer built in Krakow in 1917. It's a little room in a building and... Uh, there was a story that the tour guide said, or I read somewhere, that when Sarah Schneider convened her first class, I think it was around seven or eight Krakow girls, and you know, some zealots at the time really disapproved of what she was doing because, you know, schools for girls, it was unheard of. And they threw rocks into the windows. They took big rocks, they threw them into the windows, I guess, to terrorize her and the girls. So Sarah Schneider bent down, picked up one of these big rocks and said, Medlach, girls, this rock will become the Evan Hapina, the cornerstone for the next base Yaakov that we're going to build. Evan Masu Habaynim, Haisa Leroyish Pina. See, each one of these rocks, we're going to turn them into a cornerstone. But that, it's such a powerful response, but it's a response that really captures Jewish history. Blikol. Huh? Oh, sorry, which day is the Yartzeh? This Sunday. Chavav. Chavav Adar Aleph. This, this Sunday. Okay, wow. Okay, see that? <laughs> I didn't know a yard said was this week. What, what, was, what was her real message? Everyone has this. I'm trying to do my best. She's building a school. Why'd she build a school? To make money? Beis Yaakov still today don't make <laughs> I don't think they, <laughs> they're money makers. And that's in 2022. We know why she built the Beis Yaakov school. She saw what was happening in Galicia. She saw what was happening in Poland. She saw what was happening in Eastern Europe to the most of the female Jewish population without a real educational system because there was an obligatory education for girls in the public school system and they were falling away. So what was she trying to do? She was trying to save Yiddishkeit for the future. There's no Matan Torah for men. There's no Matan Torah for women. I probably don't have to explain that in this class. And then there are rocks that are being hurled. So the proper thing is you would think, okay, you know what? Nobody's doing me a favor. I'm not like, I'm not doing this in order to gain renown or prominence or wealth or affluence. I'm done. But the way she looked at it was the belief call was a simon. Every one of these stones is going to become a, a new foundation in my life. Sometimes in life, stones are being hurled on me, either physically or sometimes even worse, emotionally, psychologically, inside. You know, I'm hurling stones on myself. And I could look at the bleak hull and just disintegrate. My windows are broken, my walls are shattered, my foundations are destroyed. Or, like Rabbi Akiva, I'll call kites for kites. Every one of these stones that are hurled on me, he turned into tilim. they became mountains. 
He built a mountain, not just a flat terrain, a flat surface. Tilei Tilim, elevated mountains of halacha. This was Rabbi Akiva's Kayach in the Blikol Simon, in the Akiva Nechamtano, Akiva Nechamtano. Which takes us into the next subject that I want to discuss today, which is all too contemporary. I don't think anybody realized, you know, last Wednesday, last Tuesday, how fast the world can change. It's like quite inexplicable. You know, I remember like if you would tell somebody a few weeks before Corona that like in a month the whole world will be closed down, they would say you have to literally be institutionalized. Somebody would have said in January 2020, in a few weeks, in February or beginning of a few weeks, every shul in the world will be closed. Every school, not every, almost. I know there's a few exceptions. <laughs> every church, every mosque, every mall, every, sta- every stadium, every store. Every- and it wouldn't, become, it wouldn't come from a terrorist attack or a third world war. But it happened. In a very different way, in a very different level. Uh, what happened last Thursday, was it February 24th, when, when the president of Russia, Putin, decided to invade Ukraine, really shook up the world and the Jewish world because Ukraine has approximately 350,000 Jews living there, which means it's one of the largest Jewish communities in the world. But in moments of, of confusion and moments of darkness, it's important also to take pause and focus on some events that are very deeply meaningful and inspiring. So, Mitzayi Shabbos, by us, around midnight, or one in the morning, I spoke on the telephone, via WhatsApp, to six, to six Jewish leaders in Ukraine. Six Chabad Shluchim, who built different communities in the Ukraine. I reached out, I wanted to know how they are, how their children are, how their families are. I spoke to the rabbi in Kharkov, the second to the largest city in Ukraine, which is now under very heavy attack just today. Kiev, the capital, Sumy, Chernigov, and uh, Mariupol. They described to me the Shabbos, the bombs falling all Shabbos. They are all in basements and shelters with their wives and their children and many of their Kehillah members, either in their basements or in other basements or in the shuls, in metro stations, which are very, very deep underground. They describe to me davening and singing and having meals and dancing and nigunim and the tefillahs and the learning, hearing, hearing literally bombs all over the place. And then I asked one of them a question. I said, I know that there are 183 Chabad Shluchim that live in Ukraine. When you say 183, and I'm not talking about one person, but 183 families, that's a mother and a father, and usually a bunch of children, spread around in 35 cities. They have built around 30 or 35 communities, 40 communities, L'Shem Olutiferes. Each one of them is a citizen either of Israel or of America. So I asked the Chabad Shliach in Kharkov, how many have left in the last few weeks when the tension was building? And I have to tell you, I was shocked. He told me not one of them left. Not one of them left. He said they decided they have to stay with their communities to take care of them emotionally, physically, 
with food, shelter, emotional empowerment, and encouragement. So I called a Jew named Reb Mendel Moskovich, who's a rabbi in Kharkov, and I spoke to him. And I said, you sound so calm. I can hear, I can hear explosions on the phone. You sound so calm. How are you so calm? And he told me words I'll never forget. He said, everything I learned my whole life was for these moments. He says, all the Torah that I learned my entire life, everything I ever learned about faith, courage, Avas Yisrael, leadership, dedication, loyalty, Messiris Nefesh, serenity, betochen, emuna, tranquility, being there for people. It was all, all training for this moment. And he said, it's very, very difficult and it's very, very scary. But when you know what your mission in life is, you could remain calm, you could remain focused, you could remain serene. I said, why aren't you leaving? He says, there are 350,000 Jews here. How are we supposed to leave? So they and their wives and their children stayed. I spoke to Chabad Shlich in Chernigov, and he told me they are missing, they don't have food. The food there, stores were closed, the food was depleted fast, and he's waiting now for somebody to bring, they got in touch with people who have factories of flour, People have farms. He said he's waiting for somebody to bring flour from the mill, somebody else to bring beans, and somebody else to bring barley stalks. And I have to say, I was, I was, I, it was now 1.30 in the morning. I hung up. I wished them love and blessings and well. And then I went into bed. And they told me, you know, they're all in basements. I said, what about sleeping? They said, we took some mattresses into the basements and it's one big Malava Malka. And as I got into a bed here in Rockland County, I really felt uncomfortable by the contrast. I can't tell you that I haven't slept since. I fell asleep. Somehow I overcame it. But it was just, it was just incredible. You know, you talk about Avas Yisrael, Emunah, Mesiris Nefesh, a dedication to Hashem, to the Jewish people, to Yiddishkeit. It was just... It was so, in such darkness, it was, it was so inspiring. I mean, it, is so, it is so incredibly moving. I know that today things are changing very rapidly because right before the class, I spoke to uh, Reb Mendel Moskovich from Kharkov. I reached out to him because I read what's happening in Kharkov today. And he told me that now Putin is targeting civilians. Initially, he said he's not targeting any civilians. So they thought we could stay with the communities. And that's our job, even though it's dangerous. But we could be here and make sure everybody has food and a place to go and medical attention and emotional attention and so forth. He says that last night, the middle of the night, a missile, a bomb hit a house right near him. A house with people and it broke into a flame and the smoke came into their house. So they were told, as other shluchim and other askanim and rabbanim from different organizations and communities, that they have to leave because the danger is, 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 is very serious. And a lot of Jews left. Not everybody could leave. You're talking about a community of, of hundreds of thousands. Many old and sick and poor. You know, it's hard for us Americans to imagine that. And, uh, you know, that, 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 that's the update today. Now, when we think about the Jews of Ukraine, I think it touches everybody in a very deep place. And I think one of the reasons is Jews have been through a lot. 
But I do not know there's another community and kahila of Klal Yisrael that suffered as much as Jews living in Ukraine. Every centimeter of Ukraine, every inch of Ukraine is saturated with Jewish blood. And I'm not trying to be dramatic. Jews have lived there for a thousand years. And for most of the generations, it was filled with Sinas Yisrael, surrounded by terrible, terrible anti-Semitism. One of the greatest and worst pogroms in Jewish history was already in 1648, 1649. It's known as Gzeris Tach Vitat, under the leadership of the Cossacks led by Bogdan Chmolenetsky. The Jews of Ukraine were massacred. The numbers are unclear because the records then were not like the records today, but it was between 100 and 300,000 Jews. Men, women, children. I'm not, I don't want to be graphic, but the torturing and the Mrs. Meshunas, the Achzarias, the cruelty of the Gzeris Tachvatat are literally unfathomable. And then the Cossacks, the Haidemiks in subsequent years, there were the famous pogroms of 1768 in Uman, Uman, Ukraine, the burial place of Reb Nachman of Breslov, they then murdered 20,000 or 30,000 Jews. That's why Reb Nachman wanted to be buried there. He lived in Breslov in Ukraine, but he wanted to be buried in Uman. In 1881, Tsar Alexander II was killed. The Russian Tsar Alexander II was killed in 1881. They assassinated him. And of course, who was blamed? The Jews. And then there were the big pogroms of the early 1880s, which created mass immigration. And as the years went on, in 1905, there were pogroms in 64 cities. In 1917 was the Bolshevik Revolution, in the middle of the Second World War. The Tsar, Nicholas II, was dethroned. The Tsar, through the Tsars of 300 years, came to an end, the Romanov family. Today we know that the Tsar was killed with his wife and all of his children by the instructions of Lenin. And then there was a civil war in Russia between the whites and the reds. And the Jews paid the price, 100,000 Jews in Ukraine were murdered. And then came the 1920s and the 1930s, and then Stalin, Lenin, Trotsky, and then Stalin, who took over, completely suppressed and decimated every last vestige of Judaism in the Soviet Union, including and especially in, in the Ukraine. And then came the Holocaust. And in one of the most horrific chapters of Jewish history, when Hitler Yemachshemoy invaded Russia, it was June 1941. Stalin had a pact with Hitler. It was called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. The foreign ministers made a pact that there would be no confrontation between the Soviet Union and Germany. But in 1941, there was the Blitzkrieg. Hitler deceived Stalin. And they came in. And they went. The Einsatzgruppes followed the Wehrmacht. They followed the German military. And they went from shtetl to shtetl, from city to city, from town to town in Ukraine, gathering all of the men, women, and Jewish children to the outskirts of the city, digging pits and shooting each and every single one of them. Before the fall of communism, the number was 900,000. Today they know that the number is more like 1.6 million Ukrainian Jews shot to death those early 1940s in those pits. Almost every shtetl in Ukraine that had a Jew, if you go outside of the city, there are graves over there which contained thousands and thousands of the holy bodies of the Jews of the Ukraine, and they were assisted. They couldn't do it on their own. The Germans were assisted by the Ukrainian population. The most famous is, of course, Babi Yar. Babi Yar happened the days before Yom Kippur, 41. In two days, 33,000 Jews. Two days, shot 33,000 Jews. And then another 15,000 in the next months when they discovered Jews. Babi Yar is a raven near Kiev. I was there. And that's where they, they, they shot all of these Jews. Now, 
Ukraine before the Holocaust had 2.4 million Jews. During the Holocaust, 1.6 million were murdered. Around 800,000 managed to escape and survive. Many of them came back to Ukraine after the war. But then they suffered from decades of communism, where most of them felt that they have to hide their Judaism completely and go undercover. They couldn't live as Jews. Many of them even denied that they're Jews. That's why some people give such small numbers for Ukrainian Jews, because they didn't realize how many Jews were in hiding. But when you talk about Ukraine, you have to talk about the other side of Ukraine. And that is from Ukraine came unbelievable light. Some of the greatest luminaries of the Jewish people over the generations were born and raised and led in Ukraine. Because you're talking about a territory which basically it's the cradle of the Jewish people in our present form. If you want to understand what the Jewish people look like today, in all of its positives and of all of its challenges, you got to go back to the cradle. You got to, the cradle is Ukraine in the 17th and 18th century more than 80% of the Jewish people lived in Ukraine. Not 50%. You're talking about more than 80% of the Jewish people in all the sections that are today called Ukraine. It included the sections that are near Galicia. They called them Podolia and Volyn, which were then part of Poland or part of, part of the Russian Empire. There was not an element or a movement in Judaism that didn't emerge and come out of Ukraine. There's not a centimeter there that is, again, not saturated with Jewish history, with Jewish life, with Jewish consciousness. I went a few times for Ukra- to Ukraine. I took groups. And uh, because I, I love Jewish history, and my own mother's family comes from Ukraine, Poltava, and uh, most Jews on some level are connected to Ukraine and Russia. Just as you walk in those shtetlach, it's almost... You wonder, where are all the Jews? There's so much, there's so much energy, there's so much presence. There's, of course, the famous cemeteries and, and oihalim of, of tzaddikim and rebbes and, and great Jews and, and simple Jews and all types of Jews. But it's like you walk around and where did it all go? You, you could feel it in the air. There's so much, so much Jewish soul and so much Jewish presence there. You take the Baal Shem Tev. The Baal Shem Tev who changed the Jewish world was born in Ukraine. He was raised in Ukraine. He ultimately settled in Mezhebuzh, which is a city in Ukraine. That's where he's buried. The cradle of, of the whole Hasidic movement, which transformed the Jewish world, especially in Eastern Europe. It's all Ukraine. The Baal successor, the Magad of Mizrich, is Ukraine. His grandson, Reb Nachman of Breslov. Again, Ukraine, Reb Levi Yitzchak Bardichev. Bardichev is in Ukraine. Most of, many of the students of the Magad, from Reb of Anapoli to the Bardichev, Chernobyl, Zhitomir, of course, Mezhebush, filled with tzaddikim, kedoshim, gedoylem, great minds, great souls, men and women. I always say, two great luminaries that changed the Jewish world and the world were born in Ukraine, the Baal Shem Tev and the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Baal Shem Tev in his day, both in Yubashan was born in Ukraine, we don't know exactly which city, but Lubavitcher Rebbe was born in Nikolai of Ukraine and grew up in Yekaterinoslav, which, of course, after the Bolshevik Revolution, they couldn't leave any name connected to the Tsar, and Catherine was a Tsar, so they changed it to Dnepropetrovsk. You don't have to repeat it. Dnepropetrovsk. The Bolshemtev and the Rebbe had a very powerful common denominator. I think that both of them, after thousands of years of Golos, after thousands of years of, of, of confusion and pain, of darkness, each in their own way, tried to uh, blow, infuse the Jewish world 
with a new sense of vigor and stamina and hope and empowerment and love and dignity, with a consciousness of inner geula within Knesset Yisrael, lighting up, Baal Shem Tev tried to light up the neshama of the nation, the, the heart of the people, teaching that all the negativity, all the toxicity in ourselves and in the world is a klipa, it's, it's, it's an outer shell, but if you look at the pnimius, if you go to the inner core, it's filled with goodness and holiness and purity, and that the greatest chains that a people are in, the deepest prison a person could be in, is the blind faith that I'm not connected every single moment with the Ein Saif. In many ways, I would say, these Shnei Meiris HaGadolim came to the world to teach that the Bli Kol is the greatest simon. Never say Bli Kol simon. Always say Bli Kol is simon. Like Rabbi Akiva, I'll call Koitz V'Koitz Tilei Tilim If you want to talk from a cultural point of view or a social point of view, three prime ministers of Israel came from Ukraine. Uh, this is my... Is my uh, Moshe Sharet... Uh, Levi Eshkol and Golda Meir, many of the atheistic Jewish movements, Hebrew literature, if you're familiar with Hebrew literature, not always very good for, the, for Judaism. Uh, you talk about Echad Ha'am, uh, uh, Bialik, Shalansky, it's all, all Ukraine, the Yiddishist, the Yiddishist movement, Shalom Aleichem, I don't know if anybody still knows what Shalom Aleichem is. Huh? Somebody still knows what Shalom Aleichem is? Mendel Svarim. This is Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, which, uh, which wreaked havoc in terms of, of, of education and, and, and Yiddishkeit, but it was a very, very powerful movement. It's, it's Ukraine until the Holocaust, communism, and then the Holocaust, which, which decimated the Jewish people of Ukraine. But something happened after communism fell. And what happened after communism fell was there was a Tchias HaMesim. Like Yecheskel has that vision where he sees the dry bones and he doesn't think they can come back to life. And Hashem says the dry bones are going to come back to life. And what happened was, Jews who were in hiding for so many years emerged. And various Jewish organizations and great rabbis and rebbitzins came back and started to rebuild Yiddishkeit. I know of one, as I said, 183 families of Chabad Shluchim who built 40, 30, 40 or 50 communities, L'Shemul Teferis, in 30, 40 cities. And you're talking about places I visited. They have orphanages, schools, kindergartens, mikvahs, camps, shuls, JCCs, restaurants, uh, uh, homes for senior citizens, programs for Shabbos, for Yom Tif, learning, yeshivas, chadarim, talmutoidas. Absolutely incredible to have observed the resurrection, the tchias hamesim that happened in Yiddishkeit, in Ukraine, and all other parts of the former Soviet Union. And today, of course, the president of Ukraine, for the first time in history, Vladimir Zelensky, is also a Jew. His father is Jewish, his mother is Jewish, most of his family was murdered in the Holocaust. His Zayda and three brothers went to fight the Germans on behalf of the Soviet Union. Three of them were killed. His Zayda came back, his grandmother ran away from Ukraine, she escaped the Nazis, they came back afterwards, and he was born in the Ukraine. And the Shluchim today, in the last few days, told me he became a president in 2019. You see, what happened after communism fell, people don't understand what happened. Communism fell in 90 and 91. USSR disintegrated, became separate. The republics of the USSR went separate. Ukraine was one of them. Ukraine was inclined to follow Western democracies and it joined NATO and so forth. And the tension between Russia and Ukraine intensified. In 2014, they got rid of the previous president, 
who wanted to be much more integrated with Russia. Zelensky represents much more of an independent Ukraine gravitating to the West. And the tension has been building for years and years and years. After 2014, when they got rid of the previous president, that's when Putin invaded Crimea. Now he invaded Ukraine. He doesn't want that sentiment, that, that thing happening in Ukraine. But they told me that the last 10 years, the relationship of Ukraine, both the government and the people, has enhanced significantly. So they have been given so much uh, freedom to build and so much opportunity to build a vibrant Yiddishkeit, especially that Zelensky is very proud of the fact that he's a Jew. He's an open supporter of Israel. And it's also a fascinating thing because when when Zelensky was warning about what might happen, the world was really very quiet. And, you know, the United States of America today is not what it used to be. It's pretty weak. And nobody was really doing anything. And people thought that in a day or two, Putin will invade Ukraine. And this one Jew, who was a pretty young guy, he was born in 1978, this one man, literally a Jew, stood up himself to one of the most powerful armies in the world. And you see what he did? In the last few days, he literally transformed the consciousness of the world to come out against Putin and to, to, to protect Ukraine. This is one Jew stood up with absolute courage and resolve, and everybody's like, whoa, and he transformed everybody's consciousness, including the United States of America, the most powerful country in the world. It's like, yeah, yeah, Zelensky, Zelensky. Of course, Zelensky was offered to be taken out of Ukraine in secrecy and be put up in a safe place, and he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And suddenly people at this side of the Atlantic realize there's such a thing called leadership, resolve, courage. You have a mission statement. You believe in something. You're ready to fight for something. It's a spirit that America used to have. Europe used to have. But something that has been, uh, has been uh, really eradicated in recent years. People don't even know about it. It's like, and, and this Jew, this Ukrainian Jew, touched and affected and inspired the world. It's really, it's really very powerful. But the question is, what's our role today? And this is where I would like to go within the last, last section of this class. There's a moment in Ukrainian Jewish history that is very, very vital. It's an incredible moment. It takes us back to 1911. Kiev. There's a Jew, a simple Jew, a secular Jew. His father was a Hasidic Jew, but he himself was secular. He is married. He had five children. His name was Menachem Mendel Bayless. He worked in a brick factory in Kiev. A few days before Pesach, April 1911, kids are playing in a forest near Kiev, and they come across a cave, a pit. And there's a dead boy there, a 12-year-old Christian child whose name was Andrew Yushachinsky. He was stabbed to death. And the question was, who was the murderer? And something unfathomable happened. Anti-Semitic newspapers and activists in Russia, this is still in the days of the Tsar, it's 1911, decided, of course, it's the Jews. And they put the blame on Mendel Bayless, who worked nearby in a factory. And they claimed he did it before Pesach because Jews use Christian blood to bake matzah. And the old blood libel, Alilah's Dam, that began in the 12th century in England and then spread throughout Europe. And Jews thought that in 1911, it's already the time of enlightenment, such a thing cannot be accepted. No normal, rational person 
can ever believe that Jews use blood for Pesach, and yet it was not only resurrected, it became such a powerful force triggering such Jewish hatred. Bayless was arrested. Ed Geschmacht, he was incarcerated for almost three years until his trial began in Kiev. The trial was an event that became an international story. First of all, for Jews all over the world, it represented a tremendous crisis. Especially in Russia, they felt if Mendel Bayless would be found guilty, it can create pogroms in the entire Russian Empire under the Tsar. Because to create a pogrom, you didn't need a big excuse. But certainly if Bayless is killing a Christian child for Pesach, the ramifications can be dire. And generally it became a huge story, not only in Russia, but in the whole world, especially in the Jewish world. Jewish leadership in Russia got very involved to defend Mendel Bayless in the trial. The fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, got Oscar, his name was Oscar, uh, Oscar Grosenberg, was one of the best lawyers in Russia. He was a fighter for human rights, he was a Jew. His name was Yisrael Grosenberg, he was called Oscar. He was actually born in Yekaterinoslav, he studied in Kiev law, and they got him to defend Mendel Bayless. He was from the chief defenders of Mendel Bayless. One of the chief prosecutors was a Catholic priest. His name was Franitis. And he came as an expert, a Christian expert on the Talmud, to prove that Bayless did it. And at the trial, it went on for months, I think more than 30 days, and they brought up every source in Tanakh, in Bavli, Yerushalmi, Zoyar, Kabbalah, any source to prove that this is what Jews do. They disregard non-Jewish life, and they use blood. Oscar Grosenberg put together a great team, and the fighting, the verbal, the verbal drama in the courthouse was incredible. Much of it has been recorded. At one point, Phanitis quoted a Gemara Baba Basra. Baba, of course, you know, Baba is Ababa. Ababa, Ababa Maisa, Ababa, Bobby. So one of the defenders of Bayless turns to this Phanitis, the great expert, and he says, tell me, the Baba Basra, when did she live? So he said, I'm not sure. So he says, here is the expert. Here is the expert on Jewish culture, on Jewish religion. I mean, they claim that he stabbed him 13 times because of the Yud Gimel Midas Harachimim. It turned out, I think it was 47 times or 37 times. It was horrible. In any case, one moment I want to share with you. A question was raised. The rabbi who was brought in as the chief defender was Rabbi Yaakov Maza. Rabbi Yaakov Maza was an interesting man. He was the chief rabbi of Moscow. He himself came from a Chabad family. Later he became a very big Zionist. He was a great scholar and he was a brilliant orator. He was an unbelievable presenter. So he became the rabbinic voice to fight the prosecution. And they cross-examined him and they questioned him and he became very popular then because he presented the Jewish case very eloquently. At one moment, the prosecution tried to do a checkmate on him. They opened up a source from Gemara Yevomus, page 62, I think it is, 61. It says in Chumash, Adam Kiyamus Ba'ayel, if a person dies under a tent, anything, anything that's in the tent, under the same roof, becomes Tameh. So if a person is in the same room, under the same roof, with a corpse, 
that person is tummy seven days, they need to be sprinkled with the ashes and, and water of the red heifer, they have to go to the mikveh, even the utensils, whatever is in the home, under the roof, that's susceptible to impurity, becomes impure, even though there was no contact. So Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yechai says in Gemari Yavamas, this is only a Jewish corpse. A non-Jewish corpse doesn't diffuse, doesn't spread tumah in a tent. Why? Because it says, Adam. Atem kruyim Adam, ve'ein umas ha'olam kruyim Adam. You, the Jews, are called Adam. The non-Jews, they're not called Adam. So when it says, Adam kiyamus ba'ayel, it only refers to Adam. That's the Jews. So a non-Jewish corpse won't diffuse the tumah unless you touch it or you carry it. But just being under the same tent won't create tumah. So he says, you see? Your sage, Reb Shimon Bayechai, says, the only people who are called people, Adam, Adam means a person, a mensch, an Adam is a Jew. A non-Jew is not an Adam. Of course you believe you can murder a Christian child and use his blood for matzah. If he's not a person, why can't you murder him? This was the question. And Rabbi Yaakov Maza responded and he shared an incredible insight. I once read that he got a standing ovation for it. And this was the insight. They say he heard it from Rabbi Meir Shapiro. The truth is I saw that the insight was already said by the Kleyakar. He has a sefer called Oilulus Ephraim, the Kleyakar. He lived in the 1500s. He writes this insight. And the author of Kitzur Shulchan Aruch writes it, Rabbi Shlomo Gansfried, in a previous generation, a period. But Rabbi Yaakov Maza said it at the court case. And this is what he said. He said every word in Hebrew, almost every word in Hebrew can be said in the plural and in the singular. For example, Yam is a sea. Yamim, seas. Shulchan, shulchanot. Tapuach, tapuchim. Ish, anashim. Isha, nashim. Bayit, batim. Shabbos, shabbosos. Every word has Lashen, yachid and rabim. Singular, plural. What about Adam? <laughs> I want to say many Adams. There's no word for it. You don't say Adamim, Adamos. It just doesn't work. Other names of humans do have ability to employ. For example, Ish, Anashim, Isha, Anashim. You have Gever, Gvarim. There are other words. Not Adam. Adam is only in the singular. So who can you call Adam? Only one person. I could say, you're a mensch. You're an Adam. Ben Adam. <laughs> you're a son of an Adam. You could say, Bnei Adam. But that's Bnei, Banim. We say in Kaparis, Bnei Adam, But Adam is only to one. So he says, of course, Adam. Of course, nations can't be called Adam. Nations are not made up of one people. The American nation is made up of 300 million people. You can't call them Adam. You can call them Uma, a nation. Am, a people. There's Kahal, a community, a Tzibur, a Shevet, is a tribe. But not Adam. Atem Kruyim Adam. Only you could be called Adam. In 1911, there were 18 million Jews living. He says, how? He says, look at the Bayless trial. If a Russian non-Jewish peasant was accused of murdering a child, who would be sitting in the courtroom? His mother? Maybe his father? Maybe an uncle? And a brother? And the lawyer? That's it. He says, Mendel Bayless is on trial. Who's in the courtroom? 2,000 Jews who never met him, never saw him, didn't know his name before the story. In London, they're fasting. In Australia, they're davening. In America, they're saying to Hillam. In Eretzisol, Jews were gathering to shuls to daven for Mendel Bells. They never saw him. They never met him. He would have died in anonymity. He's not a great rabbi, a great sage, a great tzaddik. He's not world-renowned. A simple Jew from Kiev working in a brick factory trying to support a wife and five kids. Why are they fasting in London and Jerusalem? Why? 
The answer is Atem Kruyim Adam. There could be 18 million people. It's one Adam. It's one person. It's like a superorganism. He said, now look at one more detail. If a Russian non-Jewish peasant was accused of such a heinous crime, who would be sitting on the, th- on the tr- who would be sitting on trial? Who would be cross-examined? The person. Some of the family members, some witnesses. He says, who's sitting here on trial? Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachaleah. Moshe Rabbeinu, Yehoshua, Shmuel, Yeshaya, Tanoim, Amoiroim, Mekobolim, Rishonim, Achroinim, Goinim, the Baalei Halacha. At some point the prosecutors claim that even though some Jews don't do it, but the Hasidim have a minic to use blood of Christians on Pesach. It's a Hasidic custom. All the sages of the Hasidim, everybody was... Reb Shimon ben Yechai, who lived 2,000 years ago, Quoting Mesechus Yevomus, page 62, which was written 1,600 years ago, is here in the court case. Says, Mendel Bayless doesn't know what Mesech Yevomus is. He never learned Mesech Yevomus. Even if he opened up Mesech Yevomus, he never got to page Samach Beis. I can guarantee you he'd never know what Rashbi is. Most Jews don't know what Tumas Oil is. The moment they hear Tuma, they already shut down. Right? Tumas Oil, corpses. He knows, he knows about Rashbi. What is, why are you bringing up Shimon Bayechai, who's been gone 2,000 years into a courtroom in Kiev? The answer is Atem Kruyim Adam. It's not Mendel Bayless who's sitting on trial. Every Jew who ever lived is on trial. Why? Because we're Adam. It's one person. Many limbs, many organs, many cells, many neurons. But Adam, it's an integrated, holistic, unified entity. This does not exist with any other nation in the world. I once heard parenthetically from Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, Nochem Lamb, the Chancellor of Yeshiva University. I heard this from him once many years ago. Allah Shalom. He told me that he went with his wife on a cruise in the summer of 76. They weren't kosher cruises, so they had doggy bags with tuna sandwiches to have something to eat. It was July 4th, 1976, and on the radio of the cruise they heard about Entebbe, the rescue of the citizens of the refugees in Entebbe. And everybody got so excited. There was a waiter on the cruise, who was a completely secular Jew. He happened to have a very Jewish name, Mendel. And he was a waiter, and they wanted to celebrate what Israel did. How Israel went into Uganda, flew in its planes, deceived Idi Amin, got the refugees out. It was then Yoni Netanyahu, who led the operations. Bibi Netanyahu's brother, he was killed with another three people. But they rescued, it was an incredible moment. Some of you remember it. And on the boat, they wanted to celebrate. So how do you celebrate? So he says, they took this Jewish Mendel, a secular Jew, and one of the Spaniards put him on his shoulders, and he paraded him around the ship to celebrate what Israel did in Antebi. So Rabbi Lam says, what in the world was the connection between a secular Jewish waiter on a Pacific cruise to what the Tzahal did in Israel in Uganda? What's the connection? Atem Kruyim Adam. Atem Kriyam Adam. It's one Adam. Rabbi Yaakov Maza made this presentation. He was applauded. And then when the jury was asked to decide, after hours and days of deliberation, the verdict was he's innocent. Mendel Bayless was exonerated. He had to leave Russia because of death threats. He moved to Eretz Yisrael. Things didn't work out in Eretz Yisrael financially and familiarly, and he moved here to New York. He died here in 1934 in the summer, and he's buried, I believe, in the Bronx. That story happened in the Ukraine. 
Or as the Baal Shem Tov put it, also from Ukraine, the Gemara says, Kol Yisrael arevim what do, How do we translate it? All of the Jewish people are guarantors for each other. But the word arevim, said the Baal Shem Tov, also comes from the word arevim mixed, like arev, taruvis. It says, Kol Yisrael arevim All Jews are mixed up with each other. They're integrated, they're interlaced, interconnected. And then he said, Arevim also comes from the word Arev, which means sweet. Vaharevna. Hashem is Make it sweet. Michael Arev is a sweet food. Michael Arev. So the Baal Shem Tov, Kol Yisrael Arevim Zebaza. Ale Yidin Zainin Zis Eina A Jew who's in touch with his or her Yiddish. When, when I'm in touch with what it means to be a Yisrael, and I meet another Jew, what do I feel? I feel sweetness. That's what I feel. Arevim. It's like... There's a ziskite that a Jew feels to another Jew. Why? Because Arevim Zebaza. Because we're all one. Because we're all connected. You are part of me, I'm part of you. It's one goof. And therefore, Arevim, they're responsible for each other. The responsibility comes because of the very powerful integration and deep connectedness. So we know in exercise... I heard this once from the Lubavitcher Rebbe myself. In exercise, when you strengthen any part of the body, the entire body gets strengthened. Nobody's going to say, okay, today I'm going to work on my heart. I know it's not going to help any other part of the body. It doesn't work that way. The heart pumps the blood to the entire body. Today I'm going to work on my arms. Today I'm going to work on my back, on my neck. The body is an integrated, unified system. If I strengthen any part of the body, any part of the circulation, the entire circulatory system gets strengthened. The entire nervous system gets strengthened. All the nine systems in the biological organism of a person get strengthened. No such a thing. You're focusing on one element of the body. It's one body. So when a Jew says, what can I do for Jews in another part of the world? I don't see them. I don't hear them. I'm not physically in close proximity. When a person realizes the truth that it's Adam, it's one guf. So when any Jew individually and when any Jewish community strengthens itself, becomes more empowered, becomes more refined, becomes more holy, becomes more sacred, becomes more loving, compassionate, divine, elevated, by osmosis, consciously, unconsciously, directly, indirectly, in ways that we're cognizant of and in much deeper ways that we're not necessarily cognizant of, it strengthens, it empowers, it, 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 it invigorates and it protects Every single Jew in the world. So today when we ask, you know, what practically can a Jew do today? We read the news, we hear the news, people get worried, people get anxious, and for good reason. It's, it's, a, very, very, it's a very difficult and challenging and unpredictable time for Ukrainian people, for all, for all of our brothers and sisters. Again, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. But the fact is that when we strengthen ourselves, when we daven, when we learn Torah, when we have, we engage in Masim Toivim and good deeds and, and Avas Yisrael and Achtos Yisrael and Jewish love, unity, compassion, in mitzvahs, in, in, in acts and a consciousness that invigorates us, it brings light not only to us, it brings light to the whole world and it brings light to all, to all of the Jewish people. I also think it's important the Baal Shem Tov used to say, everything is a lesson in life. I think there's two also unbelievable lessons. Look what an ego can do. Everyone is asking, what's the motivation of Putin? I don't know. I don't know. And I'm certainly no expert on geopolitical events, and I'm no expert on Russia, and I'm no expert on the relationship of Russia and Ukraine. 
And I certainly don't have an x-ray into Mr. Putin's mind, so I don't know. (laughs) But I see that all writers and essayists and and political pundits and commentators are all trying to understand. Was willst du? Whoever heard of this, like a nation just going into another nation, literally unprovoked, saying we have to denazify Ukraine because it's being run by Nazis when the president is a Jew and the prime minister not till not long ago was a Jew. So, but one thing is clear. You see that sometimes a person has an ego and has what's called a midas hanetzach, I have to win. And it's so absolute, it's so infinite that it can allow a person to make such colossal errors. Here's a man who built Russia, and here's a man who helped Jews in Russia tremendously. Unbelievable what he did for Jews in Russia. But he's going to go down in history as a gangster. He's going to go down in history as a monster. It teaches every one of us what an unbridled ego does. I was wondering if women would be the presidents and prime ministers of countries, if it would avoid most conflicts in the world. I think that's Ashtikol Svara. I know what the Klayoka writes, it says, Shlach Lecha Anoshim. Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu, my advice is you should send women as spies, because they love Eretz Yisrael. But I know, Sepastinish, Shlach Lecha Anoshim, you're going to send men, it's going to be Tzoros Tzoros. That's what the Klayoka writes. But in any case, it's such a lesson how sometimes a person gets into this state of, I'm going to win. I'm not going to allow anything to stop me. The whole world could be against you. The pressure can be mounting and enormous. But the power of an unbridled, monstrous ego, that little Napoleon that exists in some of us, be cautious, huh? Huh? Could be? Could be, listen, I don't have those levels of knowledge comparing who to who. There's also another lesson for our brothers and sisters in Israel. Israel has been told for decades... You can concede, you can give away territory, you can withdraw. America will help you. Europe will help you. United Nations will help you. The EU will help you. Everybody will help you. Don't worry, even though you're endangering yourself. If anybody really does something crazy, we're going to be here. Look what happens. Ukraine is alone. Yes, there's some sanctions, there's protests. But at the end of the day, Ukraine, for the time being, is alone. Which is why the Jewish people need to be strong spiritually and need to be strong physically. As the Gemara says, Somebody wants to come kill you, you have to be ready to kill them first. It's not that Israel is looking for war, conflict, but when you're surrounded, as somebody once said, Israel is a great country, it's just in a bad neighborhood. When you're in a bad neighborhood, God says, yes, I'm here for you, but you need to protect yourself. And you have to know that sometimes great friends in a moment of crisis, they're just not going to be there. They'll scream, they'll make a protest, they'll send out a clip, they'll say we condemn, they'll maybe even make a conference and a summit, but the bottom line is you're left to your own devices. But I feel it's important to conclude with a story that's also connected to Ukraine. I heard this story from a Jew. His name is Rabbi Nissen Mangel. He was 11 years old in Auschwitz. Mengele tried to experiment on him twice, and he avoided it. He says he doesn't know. I heard this from him directly. He said Mengele came in and pointed to his assistants to take this boy, and he said, experiments on monkeys, not on people. He thought Mengele would just shoot him, but he left. Twice he was saved from Mengele, 
and he was placed on the march of the death, the death march. The Germans took the Jewish inmates on a death march deeper into Germany to avoid the front. And he was on the death march. He was 11 years old. I heard this from him directly, and he said, I was emaciated. I was alone in the world, 11. My feet were infected, and they were just dragging, and I couldn't walk anymore. And you walked for days without food, without drinks. At certain moments, the Jews took a little snow. But if they were seeing, they could be shot. And if you stopped for one moment, the SS guard shot you in the head, and that was it. He said, I was so weak, and I simply couldn't walk further. I decided, let me stop. He'll shoot me, and he'll take me out of my misery. And at that moment, he said, I had a flashback of a Friday night in my house. And I was sitting with my father and my mother. It was a beautifully set table. The candles were glowing. And my father told a story about the Balshamtov. The Balshamtov lived in Mezhebuz, Ukraine. And a Jew came to visit him, one of his students, one of his disciples. And he was by the Balshamtov for a few days. And at some point, a shliach, an emissary, or a telegram, or a, came from his shtetl that his wife started to display signs that she's going into childbirth. The belabor pains increased. It seems like she's soon going to have a baby. So the Baal Shem Tov said, go home right away. Your wife needs you. So the Jew says, okay, I'll stay over the night and I'll go home tomorrow morning. He says, no, 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 no. It's more important to, for you at these moments to be with your wife than to be here. Go home right immediately. But he says, there's a forest that I have to travel through. And at nighttime, there can be robbers and thugs and thieves and murderers. I'm afraid to go alone. Let me wait till morning. So the Baal Shem Tov told his Jew, Ayid, gate kemal nisht alein. The Eibrishter, alamol gate mitayid. A Jew never ever walks alone. Hashem is always walking with you and accompanying with you. Gay, you're not going alone. And the Jew left and he went and he came home b'shalem and the baby was born b'shatoiv ha'motzlachas. And Reb Nissen said he doesn't know why, on the death march, imagine, he has this flashback of his father telling the story. And it infused him with some extraordinary feeling of stamina and vigor as he remembered the words of the Baal Shem Tev, Ayid Geitnisht Alein. And he decided, I'm not marching on the death march alone. God, Hashem, is holding me and with me. It gave him such strength and koyach, and he made it. And he survived. Built a beautiful family. For many lange gesunte freilichayar. In in the worst moments of turmoil, in moments of bleak hole simon, this message that a Jew never ever walks alone, that you're never ever alone, even in situations that seem chaotic, insane, confusing, overwhelming, startling, dark, and, and really senseless. But this ability, this emuna, this fortitude and resilience from knowing that you're not alone, you're not isolated, you're not lonely, as David HaMelech put it best, Even if when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear not because you are with me. This held, this holds, and this will hold the Jewish people. That even in a bleak hull simon, they know that deep down in the bleak hull, there is the presence of the Rebbeinah Shalalem. There is a simon. There is an opportunity. There is a message. There is a transformation happening. Between one yesh and another yesh, an ayin. Until the great moment of the kabitz nidachenu me arba kanfes aritz, from Ukraine, from America, from everywhere else in the world, bimheira bi amenu amen.
Have a wonderful week. You know, I want to say something. I just want to say this because I was involved in this. There were 17 communities that I'm in touch with, so we made a fund for them. If anybody would like to donate because it's for food that they need and shelter and those people who need to escape, if you go to jewsofukraine.com, this is a fund that was made with me and some friends of mine, jewsofukraine.com, serving 17 communities, and it's direct. I mean, there's no gaboyim, there's no overhead, there's no secretaries, <laughs> there's no commission. Go straight to the shluchim in these 17 cities and communities, jewsofukraine.com. Thank you very much. We should hear psuris toivus, betoiv hanireva hanigla, from all of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and the whole world. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.